Support for Essential Tremors comes from the Big Ears Festival in Knoxville. BigEarsFestival.org. Before today's show, just a quick reminder about our Selector Series vinyl listening event here in Baltimore on Saturday, October 7th, with special guest selector Will Oldham playing one of his favorite records in a high-fidelity audio environment. Tickets and more information at EssentialPodcast.com. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. It, it opened you up to think about space. See, I never thought about space before until I heard, when I found, kept understanding and listening to Monk, all of a sudden there was so much room before everything was crowded. You know, there's putting too much information, always so much information on the page and so much information in your playing and didn't understand, you began to understand the silence. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. For those not well versed in jazz, the name Henry Threadgill is instantly familiar and evokes a strong sense of the indelible imprint he's left on this genre of music and on the arts in America. A prolific composer, saxophonist, and flautist, Threadgill also won a Pulitzer Prize for music for his album In for a Penny, In for a Pound in 2016. He'll be performing at the 2024 Big Ears Festival in March in Knoxville, Tennessee, and is our first performer interview promoting it as part of Essential Tremor's ongoing partnership with Big Ears. His memoir, Easily Slip Into Another World, A Life in Music, was released in May of first song Threadgill chose as being formative for him was Spoonful by Howlin' Wolf. Very impressed with as a kid, you know. No particular context. I was crazy about Howlin' Wolf. I liked everything that he did, <laughs> and uh, that one came to mind. Uh, I mean, uh, 
There's a lot of songs by him, but like that one just came to mind. I don't know why. In, in your book, you talk about, um, you know, you you came up in Chicago. You saw him uh, 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 perform live and things like that. It wasn't just records for you. Um, you know, and I'm kind of fascinated with him myself. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what that was like, what kind of performer he was? Well, you know, I, I basically saw him as a kid. I didn't see him by the time I got grown. I, used to, I only heard records. Then I saw him when I was really small, like four, five, six years old. Four to about seven or eight years old, I used to see him perform in the street, you know. And it was just a, a, a powerful experience. I mean, if a propensity to play music attracts one to live music, I think, more than recorded music, you know. And all of the music that attracted me live was very strong. I mean, I had a, uh, it was like transforming every time I was in front of uh, any kind of musical group, singer, ensemble, you know. Uh, it just transformed me, you know. And that's what he did, you know. It's the same way with Muddy Waters, too. Alan Wolf was a big man. He was a small child. He must have seemed like a giant. Well, all, everybody up on the platform looked like giants. <laughs> they used to play in the middle of the street on a platform, you know. And, you know, you know how every, all grown-ups look big when you're a kid, you know. One thing, the blues, they talk about a blues form. That's, that's an instrumental form. That's not uh, an um Blues can be any amount of bars. It can be five bars. You know, this is uh, something that was developed later on. This twelve-bar, this idea of a twelve-bar pattern for the blues. You know, this was not necessarily always true. You know, sometimes they would they would just stay on play one chord. The older blues players would just they wouldn't even have a chord change. It would just stay in one spot. You know. The blues is a is a, a attitude and a disposition. It's not necessarily a form all the time. It can be, but not necessarily. It's really a as a, a, a idea, a disposition, and an attitude. Well, so as is often the case with music, uh, when people make up rules about it, they're not necessarily they don't necessarily know what they're talking about. Yeah, well, in this case, yeah, they did, but they they described just one aspect of the blues, and then and and then people projected that idea over all blues, like you know, twelve bar blues, you know. Later on, they start coming up with sixteen bar blues, <laughs> and this again was instrumental music. It wasn't vocal music as such, you know. The second piece of music Threadgill chose as essential to forming his sensibilities was Epistrophe by Thelonious Monk.
I could have picked any number of Thelonious Monk songs. Uh, the the uh, originality of, of Thelonious Monk cannot be overstated. Any piece of music, rhythm and name, epistrophe, well you needn't, uh, all of these pieces are unique, so uniquely original in terms of the American music canon. Thelonious Monk seems to have just jumped out of nowhere. There didn't seem to be a precedent for what he was doing. You can, what he was doing is not what the other so-called, quote, bebop players were doing. They were working on traditional, from traditional uh, songbook material, you know, Irving Berlin, uh, Broadway shows, and his material just seemed to come out of, way out of far left field. And epistrophe is just, I mean, like, again, I got picked Spoonful. It's, this is just one of the many um, uh, original pieces that that doesn't seem to have a, a, a it just, just we don't seem to know where it came from. Where did his ideas? How did how did you know we we stand on each other's shoulder? Where on whose shoulder was he standing? <laughs> Can't seem to figure that out, you know, and it was. Uh, that was the composition, but also his his playing, the way that he played the piano was totally new. No one had played the piano like this before. The Europe, the class, the avant-garde classical players in in uh, Europe used to come to the United States to see him play because they said that Thelonious Monk was the first person to develop aeronautical piano playing. His hands would be up in the air and it would come down and strike the keys and angles. Like so, like a bird flying in, like an attack, like a bomb, a, a airplane bomber coming in. The way he would swoop down and hit the keys in these different angles, speeds and angles that he would hit keys, and it would give off an entirely different sound and texture to the music. I, I can remember when I first heard him play, and I couldn't understand why the music jumped out so much. He could play two notes. And it could fill up the entire uh, uh, the entire spectrum because it was the, it was the uh, angle and force in which he had struck the keys, and that's what they meant by he was the first person to develop aeronautical uh, piano playing. That became it started being incorporated into the technique of the Europeans. See, people used to just play with their hands right o over the keys, sitting right there, basically on the piano. You know, you you didn't. Move. It, it's like shooting a pool, shooting billiards. You don't you don't really move. You, when you shoot, you don't really move your position until you see what the next shot is. That's like you don't raise your hands up off the keys until you until you know what the move is going to be. Because if you take your hands all the way off, you might it might be. You be make might make be making your next move more complicated. You understand what I'm saying? If you keep your right. hands in position, and you see what the next move is, it could be a slight move of the right hand. 
the third finger. You take your hands up off the piano, you got to bring them back down to the piano, you know. So it's, you, you, most piano players, they left their hands right there near the piano, but his hands would leave the piano quite off. Most of the time, he would, his hands would be all over the place, you know. I'm struck by the fact, I mean, people, you know, revere Monk now. I know um, uh, just from reading about uh, the, the the period that he was not necessarily revered by everybody at the time. A lot of people didn't get what he was doing. I mean, it, it sounds like you got it right away uh, or got it pretty quickly. But, you know, um, you can't really pay attention to what people get. They, they, they didn't get Van Gogh either, did they? <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Well, well, what has it been like to sort of watch that? I mean, among your your peers, right? Because so, I'm sure you must have, you know, you must have had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, friends and colleagues, you know, great musicians who like didn't get it, and then like now they get it. We were kid. I was a kid too when I was in Monk, and like there was some of us that got Monk, and then there was that other group that didn't get it. You know, that's the way it was. You know, but they got him. They got him later for whatever reason. Well, and some of them never got it. Still? Art is not for everybody. You know, you, you talk about this a little bit in the book, but, I, you know, I wonder if it's possible to talk a little bit about what um, Monk's music has, has meant for your own music. Oh, the, the fact that it, it opened you up to think about space. See, I never thought about space before until I heard, when I found kept understanding and listening to Monk, all of a sudden there was so much room before everything was crowded. You know, just putting too much information, always so much information on the page and so much information in your playing and didn't understand. You begin to understand the silence. That's what it, to, to put it in a nutshell, Monk made me aware of the silence. And music is made up of two things, sound and silence. Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS. A collection put together by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from the collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. Established in 1996, Royal Books is a seller of rare books and paper specializing in literature, cinema, music, and the arts. From Cassavetes to Ida Lupino, from New Wave to Warhol, you will find an ever-expanding selection of first editions, original film scripts, vintage photographs, posters, and 20th century Americana. 
Visit us online at royalbooks.com or visit our store on any weekday between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. The final piece of music Threadgill chose as being crucial to him was I Got You, I Feel Good by James Brown. Master um, uh, arranger and orchestrator. He knew um, orchestrator. He he knew how to time things. His timing was so the music was so laid out perfectly in terms of timing. Uh, and in a lot of, I mean, James Brown is this. Um, you can almost hear Beethoven when you hear James Brown. If you listen harmonically, the way Beethoven <clears throat> would just sit on one chord and just build it and build it and build it, then boom, even make a, a change. That's what James Brown would do. That's a, the music would just be building, and all of a sudden, boom, it'd be a, the chord change would come. And it reminds me of Beethoven more than anything else. That, that same type of technique of building and building and then jumping over to the next chord, you know. And I mean, just the rhythmic uh, variety and the way, the different ways that he's uh, used guitars was another thing. How he didn't fill up all of the space with the guitar players playing big chords. They just played a, a little bit of information, which, which made a... Uh, made the music breathe and open it up in another way because you didn't put all the information in, you see? A lot of times piano players will play a chord, a great big sound, and they take up all the room. You know, and then a lot of guitar players imitate piano players, you know, doing the same thing. But like, when you go back and listen to James Brown, it just be a little bit of information and, it, and people basically be playing counter melody lines in James Brown band, you know, a lot of little figures flying all over the place rather than great big chords, you know. But like I said, well, his ability to orchestrate and to lay out in a Rangers type of way, Otis Redding was like that also. He could, he thought the same way along those lines. His orchestrational thinking was extremely advanced. 
you know. Um, I um, notice, and you, you point this out in the book as well, that you have not worked with uh, pianists a lot in your bands. Um, uh, for that, maybe that very reason, you don't want you don't want all those chords. Well, partly. The other reason was the pianos were all bad in New York City. <laughs> I get it. I didn't want to. I wasn't going in places and playing on these out of tune pianos. Notes didn't work on them. You know, put the piano put a piano player in that position to have to play an instrument like that. You know, that was one reason I said I'm not playing. I'm not doing anything with pianos around it. It took years before I could. I'd had enough. Um, had made enough headway in my career where I could uh, start to use pianos in a more in a way that I wanted to, you know, where I could use Steinway D's, which I preferred. It took a long time before I started doing that, you know. But in the beginning, the playing places that like had these different type of pianos that like the tunings wouldn't be great, the action wouldn't be great. I just said, no, I'm not doing it, you know. And then the other thing was, too, uh, the music that I was playing in these ensembles didn't. I hadn't. I hadn't thought of a way for the piano players to interact into what I was doing because I was doing using so much counterpoint, you know. And it took a long time for me to figure out what I wanted to do with pianos. Even though some people thought I didn't like piano, I, I, I started out on piano. I still play piano. I love piano. It's just that like I have a a concept about where to use it and not where not to use it and I don't want to use pianos that are that are not uh, up to par, you know. I knew that I wouldn't I feel good. I knew that I would This has been Essential Tremors. So good. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. So good. Thanks for listening.